From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And if you have listened to any of the 231 editions of Extra Credit preceding this one, you know that I'm a numbers guy. I, I'm fascinated by statistics. I'm always trying to find the stories behind statistics and what the numbers tell us and what the numbers don't tell us. And this week, maybe more than the typical week, lots of data, lots of numbers really dictating our coverage, really driving our coverage. And a lot of that really doesn't translate well to a podcast, but we'll try to sum up uh, what we're seeing in those numbers, what we're reporting in those numbers, and we'll encourage you to go to the website and, and get the numbers in more detail. But really, it begins with the numbers on the coronavirus and the, the spread and the increase in cases, and unfortunately, the increases in deaths. And that was the backdrop as we started our week on Monday. You started it on Monday afternoon at the State House. I was watching from afar uh, remotely as Governor Brad Little uh, held a press conference to talk about the, the state of the, uh, the pandemic. Yeah, that's where things really kicked off for both of us uh, this week, Kevin, in response to a record number of new cases of the coronavirus in Idaho. The governor held a press conference on Thursday where he said Idaho is in a crisis uh, with its healthcare capacity. Uh, there were a couple of doctors there. There was an administrator, um, I want to say from the hospital in the Magic Valley, mm -hmm. uh, who yes. was there who spoke. Uh, there was an administrator from the Boise Veterans Home uh, talking about, uh, told some personal stories about some veterans yeah. he met who ended up dying of the coronavirus, but the backdrop was that they're making the case that Idaho is in a crisis point right now um, due to record cases and the effect that that's having at hospitalizations. I think we mentioned that last week. Hospitals, um, particularly in the last two weeks, particularly North Idaho, particularly the Magic Valley area, uh, have said that they're at capacity and they're concerned about their ability uh, to treat patients. And so what the governor did on Monday was move Idaho back to, he called it kind of a modified stage three. If you remember, Idaho mm -hmm. has a four stage reopening plan and sort of like Groundhog Day, we've been stuck in stage four, I, I want to say June. two months, yeah, yeah, a month since June. Uh, that changed on Monday, Governor Little brought us back to a modified stage three, but it's different than the old stage three version. And so... It doesn't call for the closure of businesses. Uh, the governor was very clear. It does not call for the closure of schools or for schools to go remote. It does not call for the closure of churches. It does things like uh, it requires masks at long-term care facilities. Um, it, it, it requires patrons at bars to be seated as, in the, as opposed to standing up and milling around. And it puts some... Uh, limits on some gathering sizes for events, both indoors and outdoors, um, different than stage three before. And the governor was sort of immediately criticized. I think he was trying to strike this balance, but the plan, you know, initial reports are it, it didn't really satisfy anybody because you've got your camp of people that, that thinks the governor should go farther, uh, that should look at more restrictions or look at a statewide mandate. And we heard that loud and clear. We also heard, though, um, that 
especially for members of the Republican Party uh, who are frustrated with the restrictions and the steps that the governor is taking uh, to contain the spread of the coronavirus. And he got pushback uh, from conservative residents, from conservative legislators uh, who say that he's, you know, uh, that the cure is worse than the disease in this case. That's something that I've heard. But you really took a look, Kevin, at not only the nuts and bolts of the announcement, but the politics of it and the reaction of it, right? I was really struck by the reaction, and you, you touched on it a little bit. I was probably not as surprised by what we heard from the right. You know, Janice McGeehan coming out against this uh, announcement is really no surprise. And like I said in my piece uh, that we dropped on Wednesday, she is either running for governor or she's doing a, a really good impersonation of somebody running for governor. I mean, she is positioning herself as the leading opponent of the governor's uh, policies on coronavirus. And, you know, she appeared on Tuesday in a video that was uh, released by the Idaho Freedom Foundation. You see her in a, you know, in an SUV with a flag, with a Bible in her hand and a gun in her hand. I mean, you know. Ready you to know, hit the campaign trail. The boxes, you, know, you, know, you know, hitting everything you want to hit in, in, in the bingo card. Playing the uh, hits. You had, <laughs> you had, you know, a core of legislators uh, appearing in that video, and they are the legislators you expect to see in, in this kind of a video, making this kind of a statement. Really, you know, no surprises from, from that cadre of Freedom Foundation-aligned legislators. But I was struck, too, by the reaction from across the spectrum. On social media, the governor was was roundly criticized, and you know, the the criticism that I was seeing on social media was from people saying that he didn't go far enough, that yeah. this is, you know, that trying to you know, restrict gathering sizes and trying to get at, uh, at those kind of weddings and funerals and people hanging out at bars as a way of, of curbing the, the spread, that's not going to go far enough. And, you know, a number of folks you know, over and over, the, the message was we, we want to see the governor doing more, you know, pushing for a, a statewide mask mandate, which the governor has resisted for months. That came up a lot in social media. The Idaho Education Association was interesting as well. And you've got to remember that IEA endorsed Little two years ago. This is not, you know, this is one of his constituencies. If you go back to that most recent election, you know, they came out against what the governor said, saying that they have, uh, they don't have much confidence this is going to make teachers safer or schools safer. And then, you know, I, we have spent a lot of time, you and I, listening to the governor field questions at AARP Idaho's yeah. uh, telephone town halls. I, I picked up the, the, the conference on Tuesday, and I was really struck, caller after caller, bringing up the mask issue, bringing up, you know, why isn't the governor pushing for a mask mandate when he says that masks are an important step to spread to control the spread of coronavirus. Why is he not mandating masks? And caller after caller from from Pocatello, from Nampa, from Sagal up in the Panhandle, saying, "You need to do more. You need to put some teeth in this. We don't in these half baked measures, as one caller put it, are just not working." And, and the caller from Sagal really struck me because he was saying, "You are abdicating to local officials, and they are not responding." Days after the, the local health district up there rescinded a mask requirement in Kootenai County, despite rising case numbers, rising hospitalizations in Kootenai County, 
Now, the Coeur d'Alene City Council then turned around and, and did a city ordinance on Monday. They, they did that really about the same time that the governor was announcing the move to stage three. So all of that, all of that criticism coming from all quarters, you know, the governor didn't please uh, very many people on Monday because, you know, it, it's such a, you know, it's a fairly modest move that he came out with. And it was too modest to satisfy folks who want to see more decisive action, but it was just far enough to, you know, further alienate uh, folks on the right, folks who will vote in the Republican primary in just over 18 months. So, yeah, I was struck by the politics of it. I was struck by the, the tone that, that we heard from the governor. And, and really, as I put it in my piece on, on Wednesday and put uh, uh, it, this is blunt, but I don't see any other way to, to put it. He sounded tired. He sounded like he's, you know, tired of talking about this. I mean, he's being very upfront about the the nature of the problem. He's being honest about the hospitalizations and, and the case rates and the the severity of the issue. You know, he, he's being much more mature and much more honest about the situation than frankly, we're seeing from the president is uh, that election comes to a conclusion here in the next few days. You know, you know, he's being honest, uh, Governor Lowe. He's not straight up lying about the situation like uh, I would say that the president is. But his, his message, it, it keeps coming back to local control. It keeps coming back to personal responsibility. That's been his, his theme from the beginning. And yeah, you know, I think you know you get to a point, you know, eight months into this story, that there are only so many ways to, to say that. You know, yeah. there aren't many new ways to say the same thing, and there aren't you know many new ways to feel the same kind of questions. I mean, at this point, it's you know, yeah, you know, he's kind of running out of things to say. Yeah, and then I, I and you did this in the article uh, as well, but I I do want to stop right here and give the governor credit. Uh, for having these press conferences regularly, uh, for having these AARP conferences regularly, and engaging with the citizens to talk about this deadly pandemic, and, and to and to share the stage on Monday with a couple of yeah. health officials who you and I both heard it said this is a bad situation. You're not seeing the president doing that as he stumps. You know he's trying to say that this is. You know, we've rounded the corner, uh, that this is a fake news, you know, conspiracy, that it's going to all go away, all the coverage is going to go away on Wednesday. It's not. Just like the virus isn't going to go away on, on Wednesday, let's be honest here. So I I give the governor credit for yeah. being candid, and I do give the governor credit for being consistent. I think yeah. if you had, you know, whipsawing of policy and whipsawing of assessment of the situation, that, that doesn't serve anybody very well. I, so that, that all is, you know, is to, to Governor Little's credit. But when you're saying that it's a crisis and your response is as, you know, as modest as it was on Monday, that doesn't resonate well with people who, who also believe that it's a crisis. And yeah. you're saying, well, it's a crisis, Governor. You've got to respond like it's a crisis instead of, you know, saying, let's leave it to the locals and let's leave it to personal responsibility. It's it's a, well, the it's fact a is, tough needle that he's trying to thread. I get it. it but, boy, it did not go over well on Monday it, at all. 
we're seeing how it's almost impossible to to please everybody and, and maybe it never will be but what we're seeing what eight months in or however far we ended this what the personal responsibility local control plan has got us is looking like a, le- a week this week that will have record deaths by the end of the week uh and and maybe record case numbers again uh, and it's yeah. likely going to be uh the month uh, with the highest deaths since this began and, and cases have been resetting records uh every week or every two week cycle or however you want to look at it so that's where we're at seven and eight months later with this personal responsibility local government response and i asked the governor about the mask mandate and he kept saying over and over again that the mask mandate won't be effective if it comes from him it would be more effective if it comes from the local level and depending on where you live in idaho Uh, what county you live in, what public health district you live in. The message you're getting from your local officials could be anything from outright skepticism over the pandemic to denial, to spreading false information about the efficacy of masks and face coverings. And so I really wanted to ask the governor about what is his office doing to reach out to our legislators, to our school board members, to our county commissioners, and he said they have been having uh, regular uh, conference calls weekly. Uh, sometimes that's been accelerated, but you really got to wonder, uh, is everybody attending those? Like, Because we're getting good information as the press uh, with firsthand access to the state epidemiologists and health and welfare directors, hospital administrators. And so I'm just, is that information getting out there to the people who make up the local government who are all citizens, untrained volunteers for the most part who've run for office? I mean, the kind of the backbone of Idaho's government is citizen legislature, citizen county commissioners, public health districts largely appointed by and populated by county commissioners. And these are just regular old folks uh, who don't have... You know, there's no training required. Um, just folks that got involved for one reason or another who never would have anticipated they would have to make these high-stakes decisions that have been pushed uh, from the highest levels of government at the national and state level down to the local level. And the governor says that, you know, his approach is just following state law and letting the public health districts do their thing. And certainly that's in state law. Uh, but that's only part of the story. Mm-hmm. Both state law and the Idaho Constitution give the governor additional powers, as we saw. Um, and so it's it's not that the only allowable response is to turn it over to these locals. Uh, certainly right. the Constitution and state code, state statute empower uh, the governor I- as well. But and to me, that's where we're at seven months into this. Um, the The personal responsibility approach has got us record number of cases, record number of deaths, and one of the, uh, based on my understanding of national data and national reports, uh, one of the highest positivity rates in the country. Yeah, and I want to get to those numbers because that really ties this segment together really nicely. But I want to go back to something you said uh, a minute ago, because I I think it's a really, it's a good point. It's a really good point. And I kind of had a little bit of an aha moment as you said it. The governor has said over and over that he does not believe that a statewide mask mandate will work, that a mask mandate will work if it comes from the governor's office, if it comes from the state level. Yeah. And 
one thing that's you know that's true is you, you can't prove a negative. You yeah. can't prove that a statewide mask mandate will not work. And I think you've got, you know, I think you've got a good number of Idahoans, not on the right wing, obviously, but a lot of folks maybe in, in the middle somewhere who are saying, well, how do you know? How do we know that a statewide, that a more, you know, assertive, consistent message from the state would be ineffective, that it wouldn't make a difference? I mean, you know, we've seen, you know, national at the corporate level, at the national level, we've seen grocery chains and retailers institute you know, nationwide policy. And you know, you know, you can like it or not, and you can make your shopping decisions accordingly. But it does seem to have made a difference. It does seem to have, you know, gotten the message across to that consumer base. Well, yeah, so, Walmart did it from on high. I mean, Walmart gosh. did it from on high. Costco did it from on high. You know, it just becomes. You know when you're going to that retailer, you know, and we're leaving out a bunch, but those are just two that come to mind. You know that you're going to be expected to mask up, and that just becomes, you know, the mask becomes the American Express card of 2020. You don't leave home without it, yeah. and you make sure you've got one in the car in case you forget, and you make sure that you've got one when you show up. So I think you've got, you know, I, I think this gets to a really, really good point here, and, and I think it gets to maybe some of the angst that we're hearing. You know, people saying, well, how do we know that a statewide policy would be ineffective? Let's talk about those numbers, though, because I think it's really important yeah. and we can't do the numbers, you know, in as much detail as, as they deserve because the podcast, it's, it's tough to translate the numbers. But, you know, here we are. It's 1030 on Friday morning. I'm going to post my weekly roundup at about six o'clock when we get to the final Friday afternoon numbers. But I can tell you what the story is going to be. You, we have had the deadliest week that we've seen since this pandemic began. You know, we've had the most number of deaths in Idaho just from what we've seen the past few days. That is That we know. And as for the case numbers, unless something really unexpected happens today, we are right on pace for another seven-day record in terms of new cases. For the... I believe now the fourth successive week, we're going to have record case numbers. And why do we focus on the case numbers? And I, I hear this over and over from critics and the deniers. Why are you worried about cases? You know, we should be focusing on deaths. Well, you, you focus on the cases because as we've seen over and over in this, in this pandemic, a spike in cases is going to lead to a spike in hospitalizations a couple of weeks down the road. And sadly, that most likely is going to translate a couple of weeks further down the road in an increase in, in deaths. You know, so you look at the case numbers as a leading indicator of what you're looking at two to four weeks down the road. And you know, you look at those case numbers, we're likely to be looking at some really rough hospitalization numbers and some really uh, sobering and sad uh, numbers in terms of deaths for the next several weeks. And you know. We don't even know where the cases are going to be in the next couple of weeks. You know, hopefully they slow down because you know what we've got right now is going to translate to some some really some really rough times ahead. So that's why we focus on the cases. And again, I you know broken record here when I talk about the cases, it's not a function of an increase in tests. We are not doing it, you know 
an increase in tests at the state level, at the local labs that would explain this increase in, in cases. That's another thing that, you know, the, the president is pounding the drum on that, that, you know, we're getting more cases nationally because we're testing more. I can tell you, in Idaho, that isn't the case. That's a lie when you say that uh, based on what we're seeing here in Idaho. So again, lots of numbers. We'll have more of those at the six o'clock or thereabouts on, on Friday. And if you're listening to us you know, after that, by all means, uh, check out my blog and get the latest numbers. But I got to tell you, it, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a rough report. It's just, you know, just all the trends we're seeing right now are are not looking good. There is maybe a glimmer of hope that some of the college case numbers are improving, that the case numbers are dropping on college campuses. We'll, we'll have that piece coming on Monday, but the overall numbers that we'll, we'll publish on Friday, they are, uh, they are concerning, no question about it. Yeah, for sure. If you want to get caught up on any of our stories uh, or take a look uh, at your trend line piece when that comes out this afternoon, obviously the homepage is going to be a good spot. Uh, to get that, www.idahoednews.org. That's also the place where you can look uh, for your campus piece on Monday. And, and hopefully there is um, some good news there, because I know just a few weeks ago, we were very concerned about some of the increases on college campuses. And so let's hope uh, that that is one area uh, where we're seeing some improvement and, and maybe they've made a difference, because that was a concern of mine, uh, just thinking back maybe three, four weeks right ago. Now? Right now, it's a promising trend, it, you know, and it's a trend that has seemed to be taking place now on several of the campuses over the past couple of weeks. So it starts to become a little bit of a, a pattern. So, you know, we can only hope that that continues and that that continues into the Thanksgiving week when uh, the major universities are planning to segue back into online for the rest of the semester. So. We'll have that piece on Monday, but a sneak preview that uh, th there's a glimmer there. There definitely is. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll continue to cover that and continue uh, to follow the latest. As you said, Thanksgiving is a big checkpoint uh, for our college and university system. Uh, students will be finishing the semester uh, remotely uh, beyond that, so that's really uh, a destination and a and a goal line there uh, for this first semester back uh, under the pandemic. So Thanksgiving is a very important um, deadline, time frame kind of situation. We'll continue to follow that as you continue to follow higher education, Kevin. Well, let's shift now to another data set. And this is one you've been following for several years. We get the latest installment of this. It's uh, the state's teacher evaluation numbers and you know, you're the expert on this, so uh, take it away. <laughs> well, Randy Schrader, our, our data analyst uh, and record specialist, is really the expert, and I just get to, to write the articles. Um, but yeah, for the last five, six years, Idaho Education News has really been taking a close look and scrutinizing the data behind teacher evaluations. And the reason we did that, uh, there's a couple of reasons, but really pretty simply because the legislature tied a teacher evaluation to a teacher's ability to earn higher pay when they implemented the career ladder salary system that we have. And so basically there's requirements and, and checkpoints built into that um, going forward as we build out the advanced professional rung of the career ladder going forward. There will be additional tie-ins. Uh, but basically the evaluations are high stakes at this point. Uh, it's required yeah. under Idaho law that every educator, every teacher be evaluated every year. And the legislature has made those evaluations, so there's a high stakes component of it, 
Uh, you have to get certain scores or, or more accurately avoid uh, getting certain uh, negative scores in order to move up and down the career ladder and get paid. So we got the latest numbers a few weeks ago from the State Board of Education. And what we found is the highest percent of teachers uh, since we began tracking this, since the legislature tied pay to performance, the highest percentage of teachers yet um, got uh, the highest marks on their evaluation scores overall. So what we're looking at out of a pool of more than 19,000 educators statewide, 98.5% of all of those evaluations got one of the top two overall scores on the evaluation. And um, just hang with me here, but there's four scores you can get. Uh, on the bottom end, you can get unsatisfactory or basic. On the top end, you can get proficient or distinguished. So just four scores uh, that you can get. We're looking at the overall scores. If you're a teacher or an administrator listening, you know there's a lot more to it. Uh, there's all these 24 components uh, that go into the different four domains. Uh, there's classroom observations that are required and um, that, that go along with, with all of that. Um, Interestingly, I talked to a couple of school districts about how they handled this because I was wondering if the pandemic was really going to affect this. Because as everybody remembers, after about March 13th or 14th, um, schools really shifted to close and to move to remote learning. And so I have a couple of case studies where I talked to the Boise School District and the Madison School District about how they did their evaluations. And something that was interesting to me was... The observations weren't really affected um, by this pandemic because the districts I spoke to, at least, they had started doing that earlier in the year because they didn't want to be evaluating and observing their teachers once you get into that, what normally would have been a spring testing window. They wanted to do that during more of the um, the normal, uh, traditional time of the school year. So one thing that did change, though, was student achievement, and that has to be factored into it. And Kevin, as you know, if you're a student, you know this. If you're a teacher or a parent, you know this. Uh, but the state paused um, assessment, uh, the state assessments last year during the pandemic. The state canceled uh, the spring SAT day. And so there were a couple of metrics that teachers had been maybe used to using on their evaluations, like a college entrance exam score or an ISAT score. And, and those weren't given last spring, so districts did have to... Uh, scramble and, and, and change some of those metrics. But the state does allow like 12, 12 or so different points. And so, you know, why do we do this? You know, we do this to give the public as much information we can because of all the money involved. Uh, salaries are the top expense for the state's largest budget every year. Uh, and so we do it just to kind of shine a light on what's happening uh, but also, you know, it continues to be the case with 98, 99% of the evaluations based on the data that the state releases publicly, that doesn't tell the public really anything. There's really no way to discern any kind of differentiation um, among your school districts, among the, the teaching staff based on that data. It, it doesn't tell me much as a journalist. I can't imagine it tells parents much and, and and just getting into it you know 30 different districts or charter schools awarded the same identical overall score 
to every single teacher on staff. And, and in that case, that was the score of proficient. And so it just doesn't really tell us anything. And also when everybody gets the same overall score of proficient, that paves the way uh, for people to move from the initial introductory rung of the career ladder up to the second rung and, and get more money that way. Um, and so that's why we look at it. Another reason that we looked at it is because this evaluation system, there's been errors and abuse and inaccuracies uh, that we've discovered and that the Professional Standards Commission, which is a state agency that oversees teacher certification, that they've mm -hmm. discovered. Uh, there were a couple of instances uh, a few years back uh, about uh, 2016, 2017 timeframe. Actually, this started, pardon me, I want to correct that. It started in 2015 is when I first noticed it. But a couple of superintendents who are now retired uh, told us that they gave everybody intentionally overall identical scores and then sent that to the state. Uh, in one district, the retired superintendent told me he did that because he didn't think it was any of the state's business. In another district, the superintendent told me he did that uh, to protect employee privacy and because he disagreed with the policy. And in both cases, the Professional Standards Commission um, uh, brought action uh, and a reprimand uh, for both of those superintendents who went on to retire. And so it's super complicated. There's a ton going on, but because of the money involved, and because of some of the errors and flaws in the system before, that's why we take a close look at it. And, and I know some people, it's a complicated thing and it's hard to get into. And I know there's certainly some people that uh, don't think the skepticism is warranted. But it isn't just me who's saying that there are some things to look at with these teacher evaluations. The State Board of Education, I think audit is too strong of a word but has done reviews, has, has taken monitor, samplings, yeah. has taken samplings of completed teacher evaluations. I haven't seen it yet for this year, but in, in like the four previous years, they took a sampling of evaluations and would just see is everything going on in here that's required by state law. And, and, and they found healthy percentages, double digit percentages, more than 25% of the of the evaluations that they've screened and review did not totally fully comply with every single requirement of Idaho law and 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 that they found that consistently and so it's not just me you know sitting here um you know saying that there's a, a problem uh i i think that it deserves scrutiny <clears throat> and any time that we have that much money involved in these high stakes of decisions uh, I, I think it's worth sharing what we know. And so that's what we're doing. We're sharing the data. And I talked with uh, it, basically HR officials from two public school districts to talk about how they did it. And I had an interesting conversation with Nick Smith from Boise, the HR director, who said essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, when, when the public sees 99%, um, it's really hard to differentiate what that means. But what Nick said was, that they view it as a tool to help individual teachers improve their teaching practice. And I know a lot of districts um, use it this way. And I know that before it was tied to pay, that the Charlotte Danielson's framework for teaching was all about creating a tool to improve the teaching practice 
And that was long before it was ever tied to pay. But, but here we are where the legislature has tied it to pay. And so when I talked with Nick Smith, he said the differentiation really comes in in that post-evaluation conference where the teacher and the administrator sit down, they talk about their evaluation, things to work on, things that they're doing well, and things to improve on. And, and they said both in Madison and Boise that those conversations are ongoing throughout the full year. And so it's more about the individual components, which we don't see in the public, and that conference one-on-one between the educator and their principal is where the differentiation comes in. So it's a lot going in. It's a lot of data. We were able to break it down um, by school district and charter, but uh, it's there at the homepage at www.idahoednews.org. I know it's super complicated. It's absolutely the definition of getting in the weeds. Um, but it's so germane yeah. when, we're, when we're tying teacher pay increases to this and we're knowing that we're going to have an ongoing debate about teacher pay yeah. and, and maybe trying to use some of the surplus money to put back into the uh, the teacher career ladder. This is the, the nuts and bolts of how that money would be distributed if, if there was more money put into the, the salary pool. Right, yeah. So when you're, when you're following teacher pay developments in Idaho, um, the, the, yeah, these evaluations really play a big factor. And we have a complicated system in Idaho, as some of you know, um, but the state sends out money to school districts based on an enrollment formula, based on attendance. Um, it actually, it's, it's based on attendance now. It's, it's, um, it's a little complicated with the, with the pandemic, but uh, uh, it is an attendance-based formula. But that's only what the state sends out, and then salaries are negotiated every year at the local level. And where a teacher falls on the career ladder affects what they're able uh, to earn. And so that's why we take a, a close look at it. It really is kind of the sweet spot of where education policy and education politics come together because it's a complicated thing. Uh, it's dense and, and people have strong feelings about it. On the one hand, the data shows that the overwhelming percentage of our teachers, vast overwhelming percent are performing at a high level. And so folks are saying that's good news. That reinforces what we already know about our professional educators. Uh, but also, on the other hand, we do want to probe and look at, you know, does this give us as the public any kind of useful information here? And we also want to be cognizant of the fact uh, that there have been flaws and problems with the data in the past. Yeah. So that was just a lot. Um, but yeah, it's kind of the annual week where we take a look at this data. But it, it, if you want to follow budgets, if you want to follow teacher pay, um, you don't have to get into the weeds at this level, but it helps to understand these pieces coming together. We've got attendance-based formula. We've got the state sending out money, local school districts negotiating pay. But really, if you're a teacher wanting to know where you get paid and if you can get more, what you're doing is tracking where you fall on the career ladder, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's tied to the evaluations to in no small degree. Yeah. You can't have overall scores of basic. Uh, if we do move ahead and start funding this new advanced professional rung, uh, teachers are going to have to get some components with distinguished in there. So the Boise School District is making a change with how it scores evaluations as part of an effort to make their teachers be eligible for that higher pay. So it's really interesting and there's a lot going on, but I know that 
Uh, it it just sounds like a lot, <laughs> but <laughs> there's a lot there. Yeah. But it is so important, and as you've been doing over the past several years, just tracking the the trends in terms of these evaluations and the, and the overall uh, numbers of teachers who are scoring at, at the highest levels in these evaluations, and you know, you know, watching this over several years and continuing to watch it during the pandemic is 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 really important. Yeah, thanks. And and we have consistently seen the last six years, 97 to 99%. This year was the highest, uh, but we are consistently seeing in that 97, 98, now 99% range of teachers scoring at the highest marks. If you want to check that out, if you want to find out a little bit more about it, it's probably more information that you would ever want, but it's at, at www.idahoednews.org. That's the place to find that, but also several other stories this week that we at least wanted to touch on uh, that the rest of our team worked on. Sammy Edge had a couple of important stories. Kevin, she looked at how enrollment statewide has dropped for the first time in, gosh, was it more than 20 years? Yeah, it was an enrollment drop. And this is something we've been tracking uh, over the past couple of weeks, looking at the overall enrollment numbers. And this is a trend that I think we could have seen coming, uh, overall drop in enrollment for the traditional public schools, but a spike in enrollment in the uh, virtual charter schools uh, as parents are keeping their kids home for, uh, you know, during the pandemic. So this is a shift you could have expected to see. Again, one of the things that we're seeing, and we're not sure how this is going to play out long term, is uh, drops in enrollment uh, with kindergartners. Yeah. Uh, kindergartners being kept home, either being you know put into a homeschool setting or in, into a virtual setting. So we don't know how that's going to play itself out and whether, whether those uh, whether those kids come back in first grade or show up in first grade and how this plays out long term, if it's a blip in enrollment or if it's the beginning of uh, a lasting trend. But we can't answer that, but we can certainly tell you what's going on this year. Uh, you can check out that story. Yeah, down by 4,500 statewide yeah. uh, at the elementary level. It's the biggest uh, at the secondary level, there were actually some gains, and so could be an interesting dynamic uh, to follow, especially with those kindergarten numbers. Is that temporary with the pandemic, or is that telling something uh, about how the future of our schools are, are going to look? And so we're just going to have to continue to follow that, won't we? And probably in the end, it's going to depend on how parents feel, not just about the pandemic and about the health aspects of enrolling kids in school, but also the experience of having kids in a homeschool setting or in a, in a virtual charter school, you know, you know parents are going to have to decide, is this for them? Is this for their kids? And that's going to be a, a very personalized decision. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of Sammy, Sammy did take, Sammy Edge took a look at the new fall Idaho reading indicator results. And that's giving us um, uh, an early look at what we thought was coming, which is students losing ground in uh, reading, in this case, is what this uh, assessment teaches us, but losing ground during the pandemic. I, I believe they canceled the spring IRI, uh, and so what we're doing is we're looking at this fall's numbers and comparing them to last fall's numbers, and, and we're seeing it's down, and we're seeing, again, um, students showing up not prepared to, to, to read at grade level at the beginning of the year, right? Right, and, you know, these are numbers that we ask for every year. We were uh, asking for these uh, 
for, for quite some time this fall. And lo and behold, State Department of Education beat us to the punch, put out a press release. Uh, Sammy wrote up a story and took a closer look at the numbers that, that we published. I believe we published the story on Wednesday. And yeah, these numbers, you know, I've been watching these reading scores for a while. And yeah. The takeaway that I had here is, and again, I don't think you can be surprised by this, but the takeaway that I had was you're seeing a drop off in the first, second, and third grades. Um, you know, kids coming to school in the fall, they're just not where their their predecessors were a year earlier. Kindergarten scores, I want to sugarcoat this, uh, we still have about 43% of kindergartners showing up with grade level, the pre-reading skills that, yeah. that, that you know, the teachers are looking for in the screen. So we're at about that 43% level this year, just like we were last year pre-COVID. Well, that you would expect, you know, that's, you know, there really hasn't been much of a change necessarily in, you know, the learning environment. There hasn't been a change in, you know, pre-K offerings in the state over the past year. There's nothing really to drive those numbers in one direction or another. But here's what really jumped out at me, just one, one data point. A year ago, 49% of first graders showed up reading at grade level, which isn't a great number. I mean, that's, you know, just slightly less than, than half. Yeah. This year, that number goes to 41.7%. So a drop of about seven percentage points. And what that suggests is that, you know, the, the kindergartners from last year who had to, you know, leave school in the spring and, you know, study at home because uh, schools were closed, they showed up for fall classes as first graders and they their reading skills were not where we have seen them in you know preceding years you know and the same thing with with, with second graders we went from 63 percent at grade level last year to 54 percent so another drop off of you know you know close to 10 percentage points uh third grade you go from 64 percent a year ago to 58.2 percent so a drop of about six percentage points so across the board you're seeing you know kids showing up not where their predecessors were a year earlier. So not really a surprise. You know, so much was uh, was lost along the way in learning when schools had to so abruptly shift to online learning. It would have been stunning to see these numbers hold steady, you know, from one fall to the next. We could have expected a drop off now, you know, some quantification. And again, let's remember what the IRI is all about here. It's designed primarily to be a screener. It's designed primarily to be a, a diagnostic yeah. exam that teachers can use to say, okay, I got this, this kiddo who needs help in you know, this aspect of, of reading, you know, who, who needs help with, with letter sounds or with uh, comprehension, with, with fluency. You know, it's used you know, to help teachers figure out how to get that that kid from below grade level to ideally to grade level by the end of the academic year. So, you know, let's, you know, let's remember why this test is, is used and why it's been in, in the classroom in some form for the, the past 20 years. It's a diagnostic, it's a screen, but it really gives you a sense as fall began, you got a lot of kids who are, uh, you know, gonna, you know, who 
we're going to need some extra help getting back to grade level or getting to grade level. Yeah. And the IRI was something that that test was really something that we were looking at before the pandemic. We kind of had a literacy initiative that was building with Governor Little. And that was something that we were really uh, looking at was the new IRI test and results and what we were learning there. Uh, And so we had been focusing on a literacy initiative that was building before. Now we're looking at the numbers uh, to see what we can learn uh, about learning loss and, and about um, disruptions during the pandemic in the spring and what that may show us about what's coming. And so um, useful data there, interesting data there. But as you said, Kevin, it really was a week where the numbers became the story. It really was. And, you know, we don't have any numbers to deal with next week. It's not like there's an election or anything going on. But, uh... No, that's a good point, um, though. Uh, yeah, Tuesday is the election. <laughs> Attention, Idaho reporters. Polls will be open from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. If you have not voted absentee and you want to vote in person, uh, that is available to you this year. Even if you're not registered, Idaho allows same-day registration at the polls. If you want to check where your polling location is, even if you vote every year in every election, it might be a little bit different this November uh, because of the pandemic and a couple of the changes that are going on. Uh, So you can visit idahovotes.gov, idahovotes.gov, and enter your information and check out where your polling place is because that may have changed and you obviously want to save yourself some time on Tuesday. If you have an absentee ballot still, that absolutely needs to get to your local county clerk's office and be in their hands by 8 p.m. Tuesday night. Dropping it in the mail Tuesday morning doesn't count. They need to have it. Um, And so there's good information, idahovotes.gov. If you already requested an absentee ballot like both of us and returned it and you want to find out if that's been received, you can also get that information at idahovotes.gov, idahovotes.gov. But a big election Tuesday. Kevin, where can the people find you? Because I know you're going to be on TV talking about results and trying to make sense of, of what we learn. Yeah, I'll be working with our with our friends over at Idaho News 6 uh, with their election night coverage. I think we'll probably be talking, well, I know we'll probably be talking a lot more about what's happening at the federal level with the presidential race and and the state races. As far as our coverage, Clark, you and I, I think we're going to focus on uh, on our website on some of the races that maybe are are not going to get as much attention. Uh, You don't need to come to us for for analysis of the presidential race. There There are plenty of places that will do it a lot better. Uh, and you're going to get a lot of coverage of the congressional races uh, from, our, from our friends and partners around the state. I, I think we're going to probably take a little bit of a closer look. There are some legislative races that are that are interesting that yeah. could really have an impact on education policy going forward. There are some uh, trustee races for the College of Western Idaho, which is kind of facing some transition and some challenges uh, because of the pandemic. Um, so those are races that don't get a whole lot of attention, but we'll give them a little bit more attention, uh, both on election night and uh, in sort of the, the post-election analysis. So, you know, come to us for that and, you know, you know, keep an eye on our, our, our partners and our friends around the state for 
for more detailed coverage of the, uh, the congressional races. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, uh, we'll be back next week with another brand new edition of the Extra Credit Podcast to tell us what we learned from the election results, what the latest is with the coronavirus pandemic. And I don't know. I don't know if we will know who won the presidential election by next Friday. I hope we do. I hope that, that we have answers, but I don't know. Uh, stay We're, tuned and see, right? Yeah, I mean, and then, you know, who knows what we'll be talking about on the podcast. We may be able to uh, talk a little bit about how how that race and how uh, how these legislative races might affect education policy, but uh, who knows what to expect. In, in 2020, who knows what to expect about pretty much anything. Yeah, it's a great place to, to leave off. I can't argue with that. Uh, thanks so much. I know this was a long one. I know it was a lot of numbers. Uh, this week, but as we said, the numbers really became the story and, 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 and tell us about the story. And so I apologize for that. Maybe we'll get away from numbers <laughs> at one point. But anyways, uh, we do it after the election, probably not next week. <laughs> yeah, probably a couple weeks. But we do appreciate uh, you joining us. You can check out the homepage. That's www.idahoednews. We're on Facebook, on Twitter. We're at Idaho Ed News. And so you can stay connected uh, with us in all those different places there. But Thanks so much for listening. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and have a good week.